Thank you, Steve, for leading us uh, this morning in worship. Also, I'd like to thank you all very much for your encouragement by coming out and coming under the sound of the Word of God this morning, because not only encourages me, but encourages one another as we join together and, and come under the sound of the Word of God. I'm going to continue in our series on 1 Corinthians and I want to open the scriptures at chapter 15. This is our fourth message in chapter 15 and it's not finished yet. We want to open the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15 and we're going to read from verses 29 to 34. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 29 to 34. This is what the word of God says. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptised for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Trust God will add a blessing to his word this morning. The resurrection provides motivation. I kind of try to put a lot of effort into my title of my messages because to me it, it summates what the whole message is about. And as I was doing this, I was also aware of, and which you will be of, the circumstances surrounding the Adelaide football coach's death, Phil uh, Walsh. Those circumstances were brutal and shocking, to say the least, and the city of Adelaide and further afield has rightfully mourned and paid tribute to this man for his influence, especially in the football world. Those Phil's death happened some weeks back, yet the influence he carried is being felt and seen, especially by the Crows footy club team. His death was a major blow. But the Crows footy team have not given up. They've not thrown in the towel. They have not caved in under the immense pressure of this deep loss. For them, it seems to be still very much game on. Of course, this was seen very vividly last Sunday when they beat Port. And also yesterday, another win. And after the game last Sunday, the Crows star, Patrick Dangerfield, we don't know for how long he's going to be a Crows star, but it doesn't decide the point. This is what he said. Words can't describe the past couple of weeks because Phil had such an enormous influence on us and to claim such a hard-fought win, it's one here to be proud of, end quote. 
Phil's death has not dulled the determination of these players. As a matter of fact, it seems to have given these players fresh motivation to play hard, to play to win in honour of their deceased coach. And as I was thinking about this, I was struck with the idea of how much more motivated we should be as believers to live and work and play for Jesus Christ. Our Saviour, he's our coach. He's not dead. He lives forevermore, right? He's our Redeemer, he's our, he's our Rescuer, he's our, he's our Deliverer, he's our Lord. For those who have trusted him can claim that. He died in the most dreadful and horrific circumstances at Calvary on our behalf. But he lives. Surely, as we think about this, this is exceedingly greater motivational truth than any deceased person could ever give. He arose. He triumphed over death. He is alive. As we know, the grave could not hold him. He arose and he ascended into heaven and he's now seated at his Father's right hand. And this Saviour, this beautiful Lord, our Lord, is coming again. Amen? And because he lives... We as believers, those who trust in him, shall also live in resurrection glory with him. Now if you want a motivation, if you want to be motivated to live and to work and play for God's glory, the Lord, who is the first fruits of those who slept, which we've looked at, that's motivation par excellence, Amen. If men can be motivated by someone who is deceased, surely we are divinely called as believers to be motivated by God's perfect man who died and now is alive forevermore. He arose to be the first fruits of those who slept in Jesus, as we have in verse 20 of this chapter. But he arose not only for himself, but for our justification. We're told that in Romans 4.25. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it was a reality, this means our bodily resurrection, those who trust in him, those who believe in Jesus Christ, our bodily resurrection will also be a reality. We need to understand this. And that's what this whole chapter that we have spent, this is our fourth message on, and we'll probably spend five or six on it, this is what this whole chapter is about, especially up to this point. It's been emphasizing this, the reality of the resurrection, the believer's resurrection, because Christ arose. He was the first fruit of that great crop that is to follow. But now, as we come to this kind of a last section of proving the reality of the resurrection, as we come to this section, we need to say, so what? How should this affect me? What should my response be as a believer in Jesus Christ? And so this closing section, can I say, tells us of how the bodily resurrection of believers should motivate us to live and to work and to play for the glory of God. 
And so Paul, what he does here is he simply gives us three examples of this. And the first one on my list is the resurrection motivates us to be faithful witnesses. We have this in verses 29. And so what Paul does here in verse 29, he continues to argue his case of the believer's bodily resurrection and he does this firstly by stating in this verse 29 one of the most, you've got here, one of the most debated verses in the whole of scripture. It's debated, why? Because simply this, it attracts a number of valid interpretations along with heaps of error. Now, I'm not going to address address this morning all the possible valid interpretations. I'll give you one that I believe to be nearly hitting the mark. I'm certainly not going to be majoring on all the errors this morning, but what I can do, quite plainly and clearly, with the authority of Scripture is tell you what this verse does not mean, okay? And the words that claim so much attention are this. And I'll read them for you. What will those do who are baptised for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptised for them? Now to the reader, to the casual reader, this may indicate a number of possibilities. And so what I want to make clear here is, before I suggest a valid meaning, is that there is no such thing in Scripture. Listen to this. There is no such thing in Scripture as a baptism on behalf of deceased people in order to gain salvation from God. You got that? I'll say it again. There's no such thing in scripture as baptism on behalf of deceased people in order to gain salvation from God for them. Now the ancient Gnostics, and no doubt even Gnostics may well be today, teach this. Mormonism teaches this. But the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, consistently teach that salvation is by personal faith alone. It's, scriptures are full of this. And I'll take you to a couple of key points. Right in the Old Testament, we have in Genesis 15, where Ab- it is said of Abraham, and it's been referred to this morning, as Abraham came out of the country, he heard God speak. God spoke to him, and Abraham believed and he obeyed. That's what a believer is, by the way, right? He obeys the word of God. And so Abraham believed, and it's recorded of Abraham, that Abraham believed God and it was counted or he was considered by God as righteous because of that. Genesis 15. It's repeated also that same thing as an illustration by Paul in Romans chapter 4 verse 3. Paul teaches the same truth to the Ephesian believers in chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. Some of us have been going through the book of Acts on our home group nights and we see there in Philippi, the Philippian jailer. He cried out to Paul in his hour of extremity and, and Silas, what shall I do to be saved? What is Paul's response? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Salvation, I cannot reiterate it enough, salvation is through personal faith alone plus nothing else. 
Even water baptism, listen to this, even water baptism of a living person does not save the participant. You got that? The scriptures nowhere teach baptismal regeneration is a theological term for this. That basically means, oh, well, you're only accepted by God, you're only justified by God, you're only saved by God once you get dipped into the water or poured on or whatever. The scriptures nowhere teach that. Even though this is taught, and I'm not being critical, but I just want to put it out there, even though this type of salvation is taught by Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox churches, with a high Anglican church and many others. That's what they teach in a baptismal regeneration. It is not true to scripture. Salvation, eternal life, does not come through even the ceremony of baptism. A person is saved by the mercy of God in his grace alone through personal faith alone. Okay, so if baptism of a living person, just track with me on this, if baptism of a living person is not the doorway of salvation, according to scripture, in no way is a proxy baptism on behalf of a deceased person ever going to cut it either. So we come to ask this question, so what is baptism here in our text? What is this baptism all about? This is what I suggest. As I said before, without being completely dogmatic. Because through time and history, it may well have been that we have lost some of the cultural context of when this was going down. But one thing we can surely safely assume here as we look at the meaning of the words and you see the meaning of the word baptism in its context, it's in reference to water baptism. And as you know, water baptism is an act of obedience, or if you don't know, you'll know now. Water baptism is an act of obedience by those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their saviour. Under those pulpit there, we've got a pool of water. It doesn't have to be inside a building, it can be a river, it can be down by the beach or whatever. It's a physical ceremony that publicly demonstrates the personal action of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Baptism is what obedient believers engage in as an identifying mark. You got that? It publicly identifies believers that are followers of Jesus Christ, no matter what. Once again, those who have been going through the book of Acts, we saw this clearly demonstrated and have seen that. In Acts 2, after Peter was preaching, it's recorded there that those who had received his word, in other words, those who had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and received the word, not just heard it with the head, but, but took it to the heart and responded in faith, those who had received this word, you know what they happened? They were baptised, the scriptures tell us. That's why we call it believer's baptism. In other words, true believers are those who are, are obedient to Christ and are willingly baptised, they are willingly branded with this identifying mark, public baptism. As a footnote here, there's no such thing, did you know, in the New Testament as an unbaptized believer. Bar, I'm thinking of one, the thief on the cross. 
But you've got to make an exception for him because he didn't have too much opportunity, okay? No such thing as an unbaptized believer. Matter of fact, if you asked anyone in this New Testament period if they were baptized, it was synonymous and the same as asking if they were saved. That was it, period. You see, these men and women took the Lord's commission, Jesus' commission in Matthew 28, very seriously, where it told to go out and preach the word, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. They took it seriously. And so this ceremony of baptism, symbolically, this is what it did to the individual believers. It, it kind of symbolically nailed their colors to the mast. You know what I mean by that expression, right? It nailed their colors to the mast as being Christ followers. What for? So others could see and imitate what they were doing. That's what it was for. A baptized believer was, folks, and still is, or should be, a powerful witness. And this is what was happening in Corinth. This is what was happening in Corinth, I believe. People had nailed their colours to the mast, their faith in Jesus was put on public, public display, and it was witnessed in their baptism. Why? What motivated people to follow and imitate those? What influenced them? What was such an incentive to them that they put all human fear aside and became bold in their faith toward God? What was it that kept people coming to the faith and being baptised, coming to faith and being baptised? What was it? What motivated them? Can I suggest that being baptized for the dead was all about their identification and their public demonstration of faith that was spurred on, that was prompted, that was motivated by the witness of believers of the past who were now dead, deceased. They had seen and heard the testimony of those who had been baptized but had now died. These deceased saints, their faith in Christ in the resurrection, it, it was heroic in the face of personal danger, persecution and even death. And, and these heroes stood firm in many people's minds even though they had passed on. This was powerful them, it motivated them. And God used their witness, even though they were now no longer with them, to bring them to faith and to baptism themselves. In other words, through some of those, some of their heroes had died, it was their testimony, it was their witness, it was their demonstration of what real faith in Jesus Christ and the resurrection was that motivated them to follow Christ also. It was these absent faithful believers whom they were now imitating with their own faith in the Lord by being baptised. That's what it was. In other words, they were baptised for the dead, as the text says. That word for, by the way, can be taken in the Greek many, many ways. For, with, etc., etc. And so these folk, they were saved and obedient followers of Jesus Christ because of the witness of deceased saints and so they identified themselves with them. Now, I believe this can be a valid meaning. 
You may have others. That's okay. But we cannot get away from the fact that if there is no resurrection, there is no hope of a future resurrected life for the Lord, right? We cannot get away from that. So we can ask, why, with Paul, the question, why then are you being baptised? You see, Paul was addressing living saints. He talked about the baptism of the dead, and then he turns around and says, but so why are you being baptised for them? Or, or why are people being baptised, being motivated by the witness of the sea saints who believed in the resurrection if there really is none? Paul's argument was simple. If there is no resurrection, your faith is futile. Why waste your time identifying yourselves then with the sea saints who believed in the resurrection? It is true that God uses the witnesses or the witness of past saints to bring people to faith in Christ and the resurrection, right? It is true. The witness of a baptized believer can and should be a powerful motivating witness to other folks. Many here are baptized. You carry that identifying mark. And now you're living out a baptized life. I hope you are. What kind of witness is it? My dad, he passed over 20, away over 20 years ago. But his life of faith in Jesus Christ and, and, and his hope, which he majored on, I can always remember, of, of, of a glorious resurrection based on the fact that Christ arose. He was so full of it. And I say that in a good way. Even though he's been passed away 21, it still motivates me as a personal witness to stand firm in the faith also. Don't underestimate the value of your witness as an, obe- as a, an obedient believer to motivate others now and even after you have left this world. Okay? The resurrection also motivates us to serve the Lord. We see this in verses 30 to 32. So the resurrection not only motivates to be a faithful witness, but also motivates us to serve the Lord while we are still in this world. And what Paul does here is he continues uh, this argument of 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 a future bodily resurrection of all believers. And what his approach is here is that he asks another question concerning... The literal danger many believers faced in his day and down through the centuries as we have read a whole list of them this morning, Steve has read. Some even died. And so what Paul does here is he kind of plays the devil's advocate. And in verse 29, what he does, he has shown us the folly of being baptised and continuing the testimony of God if there is no resurrection. And here in verse 32, he exposes the folly of believers endangering their lives for the service of the gospel if the dead are not raised. And so Paul counterattacks this error of no resurrection by asking a question. He kind of says this, what on earth is the purpose of putting our lives in jeopardy on a daily basis and be willing to die for Christ if there is no resurrection for us. What's the use? Now, Paul himself, he knew that he was on the hit list. 
He was. He was on the hit list all the time. And he knew that any day could be his last on earth. That was a reality for him. But he carried on anyway. And he continues his argument by reflecting back to a specific intense time at a city called Ephesus, which was over in modern Turkey of today. And there his life was in extreme danger. And he speaks of wild beasts. Now, we don't know whether these wild beasts were uh, literal, the wild beasts of the gladiator's arena. It may well have been. Or, or it may have been the angry mobs that were in Ephesus during his day opposing the gospel. We're not too sure which. But one thing is for sure, his life in Ephesus was on the line big time. So he asked, what does it profit me? What does it profit me if that danger was only for human motives? What, what was the use of me going through all that stuff if it was just a matter of purely and only human survival? If my fight was with them only to lengthen my days or, or, or to kill those suckers before they kill me, if that was all it was about, if that was all it was about, if that's all that it was, I am a fool for endangering my life and serving the Lord and his gospel. That's what he's saying here. I should be living it up in any way I can before I die if there's no resurrection. You see, folks, the same thing is. What is the purpose of suffering in any way for Christ in this life if we will never see him face to face in the next? Amen. What's the use of serving in the gospel and winning others to Christ if they will never see their saviour face to face? That's not good news. That's not good news. That's pure, bad and dismal news as far as I'm concerned. Dear people, the only thing that should motivate us to serve Jesus Christ and if necessary, if necessary, endure suffering, ridicule, abuse, and rejection, the only thing is this, that Jesus Christ's redeeming work of saving sinners goes way past this life into everlasting life for those who believe. That's the only thing. After all, after all, look at the supreme example we have, and we've already had this referred to a couple of times this morning. The Lord Jesus was a supreme example in this. He, it's spoken of in Hebrews 12 too. The, he was the author and perfecter of faith. Who? What did he do? Who for the joy that was set before him. You got that? The joy that was set before him. What was the joy? He endured the cross that was, he, that was set before him. He endured the cross. He despised the same and is sat down at the right hand of God. For the joy that was set before him. In other words, for the anticipated joy of his own resurrection and being enjoying the glory he had, which he speaks of in John 17, before he came to earth and being the first fruits of them that slept and being with his Father in glory, that was the joy the Lord was motivated to serve his Father by dying on our behalf. Folks, if the Lord was motivated to serve and suffer for us, 
and anticipation of being raised to eternal glory for us, should not we be motivated in the same way? Listen to what Paul said to Timothy, a younger man, Timothy, who was a little bit timid in the pastorate. And he said this to him, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, Descendant of David, according to my gospel, which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment, as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. 2 Timothy 2, 8-10. May we be motivated to serve the Lord wherever we are because one day we will see the Lord face to face. Not by faith, as Steve was talking about it by then. We see him now by faith, but one day we will see him face to face, literally. And because of that, may we be motivated to serve him in faith now. My final point is the resurrection motivates us to live godly lives. We see this in verses 33 to verse 34. You know, springtime, you might have saw those daffodils up in my first slide there. I put that there for a purpose, not because I just love the colour. Springtime is a favourite time of the year for me, as I would say is for any gardener. And this kind of thing went right back to my farming days. I've always loved the spring. Any farmer, I believe, would love the spring. Especially. And one of the main reasons why I love spring, spring reminds me of the resurrection. Trees burst into blossom, dormant bulbs that have been sitting underneath the ground unseen burst forth suddenly with vitality and colour. Roses reward you with, with, with a flush of delicate beauty and alluring fragrances. Yes, so spring is like a resurrection. But you know what? The vivid beauty and rewarding fruitfulness of spring only comes, only comes as a result of the gardener doing a necessary work. The pruning, the weeding, the deadheading, etc., the fertilizing, and it goes on and on. This is, by the way, somewhere some don't like gardening, but that's okay. This is only an illustration. And so what I'm saying is simply this. If you want the reward of spring's beauty in the garden, you dare not ignore the work that needs to be done. Or in another way, you remove, for me anyway, you remove the motivating season of spring and you know what? I would trash my secateurs. I would never buy any more fertiliser. I would forget the weed control and I'd go and buy some plastic flowers. I think you get my point here already, okay? You remove or lose sight of the divinely promised resurrection. The eternal springtime, can I say, the eternal springtime of our resurrection, of our redemption, and you will ignore, this is what you will do, you will ignore godly disciplines, you will ignore personal sacrifice, you will ignore prayer and Bible study, and even forsake the assembly of ourselves together like we're doing here this morning. That's what you'll do. 
may not be all of a sudden, but it'll be gradually, gradually, when you lose sight of the motivation of the resurrection, when you will be raised up and see and be face to face with the Lord. But that's not all. That's not all. You see, you lose sight of that and a vacuum is created in your life as a believer. As a believer I'm talking about here. You lose sight of that and, and, and there's a vacuum, there's a space there that's got to be filled with something. And you know what it's filled with? Because you refuse to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, which we're commanded to in 1 Timothy 4.7, you will fill yourself with teachings and philosophies of man and culture which, by the way, seems to be exactly what was happening in Corinth, as we see in verse 33. They began filling this void by mixing or allying themselves with bad teaching or bad theology. And, and, and this bad teaching and, and, uh, about that there was no resurrection, they were corrupted by this. The culture was full of it, as we have already discussed in prior messages, that there is no resurrection. The only thing as good as spirit, all matter is bad, and that included the human body. No resurrection. And so these Corinthians, they lost sight and denied the reality of their, their resurrection through this false doctrine that helped them along, and, and, and they were deceived by it. Their thinking was corrupted into thinking that there was no resurrection. And folks, can I say, and you've heard me say this before, wrong thinking always leads to wrong behaviour. And that's exactly what happened in Corinth to these Corinthian believers. So don't think just because you're a Christian you're exempt from all the temptations and all the stuff that goes on out there. You are not. After all, if there's no resurrection, surely it would be, uh, be as we saw back in verse 32, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because just as hoping in the resurrection motivates us to serve and, and to live lovely, godly lives, no resurrection, you know what it does? It only motivates a person to live in disobedience and licentiousness. That's what it does. Wrong thinking always ends up in... Wrong behaviour. This is exactly what some of the Corinthians do. And they, had, they had been seduced in their thinking by some pretenders who had come into the church and, and were mixing with them. They'd been seduced by them. And these, these, this Paul says, and these people, they had no knowledge of God. That simply means that they were, they were sheep in wolf's clothing. They were not believers. But they claimed to have a higher truth. And some of the Corinthian believers were deceived by this. And Paul commands the Corinthians, especially those who are dabbling in this heresy, in verse 34, he says something like this. He says, shame on you who know better. Shame on you. And he says, wake up from the stupor. This word he uses here is like they were intoxicated with this, with this false teaching. And they were in a kind of a stupor. And Paul says, wake up, stop your sinfulness. Pretty serious stuff, isn't it? As I wrap this up, I just want to reiterate, the resurrection has great power. 
It is powerfully motivational. It motivates us, or it should motivate us to be to be faithful in our witness of the gospel. It motivates us, or should motivate us, to serve the Lord unswervingly. And it motivates us to live godly lives. Now here's the question. Is this the influence? Is this how you are being motivated? Is this the influence that the resurrection has in your life? If not, it is because, simply this, you have lost sight of this glorious future reality where faith will give place to sight. You have lost sight of it. And you need to get back on track. You need to start thinking right. According to the word of God. Or it may be that you have no personal faith in Jesus Christ at all. Hence, the only response for that is you need to bow in repentance and faith before God. Who alone can make you fit for the environment of heaven. May God bless his word to us this morning as we consider the motivations of the resurrection. Shall we pray? Our gracious God, we come humbly before you this morning and we thank you for this time of worship where truly we have been caught up into heaven as it were. We thank you for the spirit of God that has moved us and impressed upon us truths and warmed our hearts and challenged us and convicted us. Lord, never let us go. Well, Father, help us to understand that it's faith that pleases God. And so, Father, we understand that the resurrection is a reality. Jesus Christ arose and so therefore we will also rise. And if the Lord comes before we do die, we will be caught up to be with them who have passed on to be with the Lord in the air forever and ever. And so Lord, help us to understand that one day we will see the Lord face to face. Motivate us, Lord. Make these truths be imprinted indelibly on our hearts and minds so that we might motivate it to witness for the Lord, to serve the Lord, and to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.